From the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, this is The Porch. medical station in Asheville earlier this week was wrong, it was senseless, and it only serves to reinforce those feelings of mistrust, hurt, and anger. If we're not doing our job, you've got to show up at the poll. If we don't do our job, just because I'm rap, does it mean that I'm rap for a rap for a paycheck? Man, I'm running through the maze like a rap man. I'm trapped in this rap race trying to get back, man. Not sure if I can make it. Not sure if I can break it. Not My sure. memory is an elephant. It will not be forgotten. I promise you. And I will use every resource available to me. And I hope that you will turn over resources right. to us. Yeah. There is no way we will stand silent anymore and watch another brother beat down. If you see us pull over, take your cameras out. When the officer acts in a way that clearly violates the law, as with the death of Mr. George Floyd, they must be held accountable. This means not just losing their jobs as sworn officers, but that accountability also must extend to law enforcement being charged by the criminal justice system. Thank you so much for hearing me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Power to the people, y'all. was Asheville one year ago on its streets and its parks before its iconic landmarks. A year later after those protests and marches following the police murder of George Floyd, how much closer is Asheville and all of Western North Carolina to the racial justice and equity those on the streets were marching for? I'm Matt Bush and will attempt to answer that question over the next hour. Later, we go to the very western end of North Carolina to hear from an activist there before returning to Asheville to find out what happened to the police department and its budget that have been the focus of city politics ever since the protests. But first, Asheville's Racial Justice Coalition was busy before, during, and following the marches. We start the show by hearing from them with an assist from BPR's Matt Pikin. 
I'm Matt Pikin, and you're listening to The Porch from BPR News. Asheville's Racial Justice Coalition is a broad alliance of people and organizations committed to addressing systemic racism and violence against people of color. This past year was a busy one for the coalition. Beyond the front lines of protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder, hundreds of coalition leaders and volunteers led a range of community efforts. They supported COVID response and rental assistance, advocated divesting money from the police budget and reinvesting it in the black community and lobbied for city and county reparations resolutions, among other projects. For this episode of The Porch, we invited leaders of the Racial Justice Coalition to reflect on their work over the past year, the progress they've seen, and the challenges ahead. We'll first hear from Rob Thomas, the coalition's community liaison. We'll also hear from the single named Grits, who is the coalition's community outreach coordinator, and David Greenson, the volunteer coordinator. First, I'll start off with some of the origins of the RJC and, you know, how we were kind of formed in the beginning. Around 2014, community members and a couple of nonprofit organizational leaders all came together, and this was pertaining to what happened to Michael Brown in in Ferguson. They had analyzed our local, you know, political and, and social environment and realized that we were kind of right for the same thing to happen here. And then they started looking into ways that they could proactively prevent things like that from happening here in Asheville. Some of the things that come out of that are things like de-escalation training, which the Racial Justice Coalition worked alongside APD at the actual training when it was implemented. You know, they kind of went over it in the beginning with law enforcement and they got that implemented and they fought a while for things like written consent. And finally, written consent got implemented. They also got implicit bias training, which is actually a whole lot of individual trainings. Then we had an instance in 2017 where Mr. Jay Williams was shot by law enforcement and his body was left out in the community for a while. That caused the whole outrage and the RJC had got involved advocating for justice around that. And then later in 2018, uh, we have the incident where Johnny Rush is a uh, citizen that is attempting to cross the street outside of the the crosswalk. The officer starts yelling and chasing after the citizen. And then when they catch him, they beat him, they maced him, they tased him. And then finally they choked him out until he was unconscious. And that happened in Asheville. And this was after implicit bias training, de-escalation training. And this guy was actually a trainer. So like he's, he was training a new police officer. That caused the RJC to really start looking at things and, and thinking of things differently because it's like even with all of this training, you know, the culture of policing still creates a major issue. The whole situation with George Floyd and, you know, we started taking to the streets, the, the power dynamics changed and we started demanding broader changes instead of just a whole lot of trainings. And that's kind of when we changed up our advocacy style, changed up our work. And, you know, working with David Greenson, we were able to create the advocacy team, but I'll let him go into what that is. Yeah. So Rob and I first met in early 2020. And in one of our initial conversations, we talked about possibilities for getting more white people involved in supporting Black leadership and the cause of racial justice. I'd been involved for a number of years in trainings here in the Asheville area through Building Bridges, through the Racial Equity Institute. And had observed that that a lot of white people had gone through these trainings and were very interested in how they could support the cause of racial justice. And there weren't necessarily so many opportunities for them to 
get involved and use their privilege to change things on the policy level. We wanted to find some way of mitigating the ways that white people can sometimes be inclined to come in and take over and do things their own way. We wanted to create real, real clear pathways so they could be of, of service and not do damage. Then George Floyd was murdered and suddenly there were a lot of people looking for direction, a lot of white people in particular. I feel like over the course of a few weeks, the proliferation of Black Lives Matter signs around my neighborhood, around the city was quite striking. So a lot of folks looking for some way to get active and we were able to pull them into that advocacy team and it grew to over a thousand. It's now close to 2000 people who are signed up to respond to our calls to action. So we were already looking towards changing policy. And then I think that climate shifted with the murder of George Floyd in terms of what seemed possible because of the level of attention that this issue was getting. I want to jump in there. I think the idea of divestment rather than reform is a very frightening thing for a lot of people in America, a very hard thing to take in. And what we see is a lot of people pushing for reform. And that had commonly been, you know, a discussion being had if we just pump more resources into the police department so they can do these equity trainings and, you know, uh, implicit bias trainings, then something can change. And it's very obvious, you know, that things are not changing. And what does that say essentially about the system that uplifts and upholds the supremacy that exists within policing? You know, it at itself, it within itself is rotten. It protects and serves mostly assets, property. It's doing a very poor job at protecting and serving people. After the death of George Floyd and, you know, a lot of people coming around to the fact that reform isn't working, what does mutual aid look like in our community? You know, what does addressing our traumas and the harms that are inflicted look like in our community? What does transformative justice look like in our community? These things that lead to brutality that lead to crime, quote unquote, are often systemic, right? And so if we're not addressing the systemic and root causes of these things that lead to the way people have to interact, then there is no way to stop police brutality, right? Because the system of policing and the systems that uphold poverty and racism and all the other isms are inextricably linked. That's really where our belief of divestment is centered is, you know, we believe you really have to address the root causes that have caused all of these harms and you can't keep funneling it into a system that just perpetuates these harms. Everything what Grits was saying, you know, all played a large role in the actions that you saw us directly taking. I look at myself personally as like a long-term abolitionist. So you have to get alternatives implemented before we can just, you know, end policing, right? Like, I can't say that I think that we should just get rid of police right now. And like, from this instance on, like, no, we've got to start implementing uh, some of the solutions and the different things that that are out there and available for us to use. And also, we got to be creative. We've got to create new stuff because what we're looking to do has not, you know, fully been done yet. So and then that led us to the uh, divest and invest campaign. And that was more or less trying to get money diverted from that system to get reinvested, if you will, because some of some of the things that need to happen have not been invested into in the first place. And then that led to us uh, getting the delay uh, for the budget vote that city council you know, was getting ready to approve a million dollar increase from what it was last year. And we got them to hold up and take a look at that. 
and see where best the funds could better be placed. That didn't necessarily go how we wanted it to go, of course, because the main part of the divest invest strategy is that you have to actually invest the money into the solutions thereof. You can't just play musical chairs with money and say, oh, look, we divested. Okay, where are you reinvesting in? And so, you know, that was the piece that was missing to that, which is why we are partially in the state we're in. And then at the same time, taking on everything that we were trying to do for reparations, you know, that really got out there last year. We were able to utilize the protest as a platform to, you know, spread our message extremely fast and also attract more people to the movement. And the reparations resolution for the city and the county was a part of the outcome of that. Even with those small wins, they're like the first step to a long fight. So most of this past year, we've been focused on trying to have influence on local governments. And we've developed more and more capacity to understand the inner workings of these governments. It's incredibly complicated and it's not really set up to be easy to engage with. So one of the things that we've done in terms of our volunteer base, because we have a lot of people that have come forward to volunteer, is we have a team that analyzes every city council and county commission agenda that comes out so we can look for opportunities to advocate. So this is all part of trying to be more aware of opportunities to move the needle. But I think more broadly, our sense has become that just picking away or trying to find our moments or nudge the city or county government's you know, a millimeter or two in the right direction is not really ultimately going to get us where we need to go. And we've shifted our focus more and more towards thinking, how do we push forward the scale of change that needs to happen? Because governments tend to move very cautiously. They tend to be very wedded to the status quo. It's very hard to get them to be visionary, think outside the box. So we become more and more aware that we're going to need to to initiate more of that thinking outside the box and building support for that. Yeah. And I'd also say we've taken a very direct turn towards what does it look like to truly empower and engage the community, particularly the Black community around the reparations resolution. We've been doing the Walk the Walk campaign since late December of last year, and it's still going now. We've interviewed maybe 500 folk. And, you know, I won't say that this is statistically correct, but based on, you know, discussions with my coworkers and myself, doing these interviews, I'd say a large percent, I'd even, you know, dare to say 90% of the folk that we have interviewed in our Black communities have not even heard of the reparations resolution, have not been directly engaged by the city that is supposed to be taking on this project or this work, essentially, that is supposed to benefit and correct the harms that were inflicted on the Black community, right? As of right now, we are starting in public housing. So when we go into public housing, some of the communities, particularly Black communities that have been most disproportionately impacted by these systemic harms. And they're saying, you know, I don't know what the reparations resolution even is. I mean, what does that say for this process, essentially? And so what does it look like for us to engage and embolden our community to participate in this process? And what does it look like for us to challenge the city to truly begin, you know, working with those who are most largely impacted? Thus, we kind of birthed this idea that that is still in the work as we speak with more community members and we get more people involved. But we're currently rallying around our 
every black voice campaign and what every black voice means. I mean, put very simply is that we should engage every single black voice in Buncombe County and Asheville city proper to inform the process of reparations, right? Like if we want to correct systemic harms that have been caused over generations, we need to make sure that those who have been directly impacted our black communities have a say in it, or at least are given the option to have a say in it, right? People have the freedom to opt out of whatever they have. People, you know, maintain their autonomy, but when we don't give them options, when we don't give them resources, when we don't even provide like, I don't know, community engagement, and I'm not, we, I'm saying as a city, as a county, when you don't do that in a process that is supposed to work for these folk, that's supposed to somehow like better the situations and the harms that have been inflicted. I mean, what's essentially the point of a reparations process if they don't have a say? And so what we're currently doing now is trying to get community leaders and folks, everyone behind every Black voice, right? We have to engage with every single Black voice to understand what the reparations process should look like, because the Black community is not a monolith. We don't have all of the same needs. Right. And so how are we making efforts to address the needs of our community within its entirety rather than pinning them to a few statistics of what is being said the black community needs? For the reparations process, you know, everything that happened was going on around George Floyd. And even here, we started having uh, in-person demonstrations you know, I was pretty much on the phone with different Black community leaders like Michael Hayes, Tice Ruffin, Keenan Lake, just a, a whole lot. And the protests that were happening here, for one, they were mostly being ran by, uh, you know, white people. And there's nothing wrong with white people going out and standing with the movement. I mean, we were like, you know, who do we know that are out there doing that? And then, of course, it was I guess it was a couple Black people leading it as well. But it, it brought us together and like we was like, let's let's hold this massive community member where we can get as many black activists, black people who, who work for the betterment of the community in on the call. And we also had coronavirus in the midst of all of this. And so it was about like almost like 80 or 90 uh, all black community leaders. And, you know, we were all discussing whether we were going to protest or not going to protest. So that was the question, either. We were going to not protest and issue a like official disclaimer of why we were not or we were going to protest. And, you know, my argument in, in that meeting was for us to be able to use the protest as a platform to get things done that we had been wanting to happen anyway. It's just we didn't really have a, a voice or agency to, to truly get it out there like that. And so that's when we started looking into uh, what our demands would be before we had to come to a consensus, like a, like a, a agree that that's what the majority of us wanted to do. And I was uh, some people in there that did not want to protest. And I was some people in there that said they didn't want to uh, protest in person, but they would, you know, do whatever behind the scenes type of work was necessary. And that was the beginning of Black Asheville demands. And, you know, we decided to protest, did it strategically. One of the most important things that Black Asheville demands did was keep up the momentum on the ground. They kept the protests going, which was a very important piece to getting what we needed to happen. Because so often, as soon as the pressure lightened up, everything is back to business as usual. We knew that it was going to reach a critical mass. It's going to go up. It's going to reach this peak moment. And then it's going to die down simply. So you want to take your opportunity at the peak moment. 
And so that's when we were planning. And I was also uh, working with Councilman Keith Young. You know, he was kind of inside the system. I'm outside the system. And he was able to use what we were doing as political capital. And political capital is the ability for politicians to pretty much get legislation done, get new policies. And so, so we were able to give him a lot of that with the, with the social environment. And you know, that's how I met Grits. Grits was on the ground protesting and they were doing an, an amazing job, always have done an amazing job at that. I definitely know they're better at it than I am. So yeah, we did the, the reparations. Uh, we, had, we created a whole movement around that in the middle of this. So about two weeks into the on the ground protests, you know, we hold the biggest protests uh, collaboratively in Asheville with, with a whole lot of black leadership. You know, the, the June 6th protests was, I guess, estimated over 10,000 people. And this is still momentum building up. The advocacy team has been created. So we're guiding people into that. And then, you know, Keith is kind of like behind some, like, all right, the politicians in here, they don't know what to do. This is the perfect time. And he's like, look, after I bring this resolution into the room and they're going to look at this is the solution. Like, you know, this is how we're going to fix all of this. So I'm like, perfect. And, and like, so is the time? And like, yeah. Then we switched all of our messaging to reparations and started, you know, even breaking it down a lot deeper, going, giving up, bringing a whole lot of metrics and data and doing, you know, other events with, with other organizations as well. At the same time, the protests and stuff is going on. So we're buying all this community buy-in and then we pretty much direct all that into the email and phone call. You know, we generated a few thousand emails and phone calls asking specifically for reparations and something to be done. And behind the scenes, we have Keith getting ready to go to the rest of his council and like, hey, let's do this. And of course, whenever they brought it to them at the check-in, they all then kind of rearranged some things on it. So the original draft that I saw is a completely different document than what came out of that council check-in, but it's still enough to work with. I guess, you know, you just got to work with what you have. <laughs> you know, everything else is history. Then we get the county to sign on, and that's probably like the, still the easy version because there's a whole lot of organizing that went to, you know, the timing of, of when to direct people to where, the advocacy team, and, you know, actually learn, actually growing that muscle and then using it for something so big as that. It was just like everything was, was perfect timing. That was Rob Thomas, Gritz, and David Greenson of the Asheville Racial Justice Coalition. We want to thank them for taking the time to talk with us, and I want to thank our own Matt Pikin for recording their conversation. You're listening to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. We'll be heading to Murphy next on the program after this short break. Please stay with us. You're listening to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. I'm Matt Bush. In this episode, we're looking back at the racial justice protests from almost one year ago that took place across western North Carolina. Murphy is at the very western end of the region and the entire state. Taylor Allen helped organize the Black Lives Matter marches that took place there last June. BPR's Lily Knepp covered those, and nearly a year later, she checked back with Allen about what the organizer has learned over the last 11 months. You know, I remember talking with you and your friends that 
you had just put together a private Facebook group and you hoped, you know, maybe you could get 10 people to come out and support. And then kind of overnight that that group became about 600 people in just a few days. And then ultimately about 300 people came to the demonstration. Uh, what did it feel like to to get that kind of community support at that time last summer? So it was obviously great. Uh as you said, my friends and I, we made the decision to hold signs and go stand on these, the corners um, in downtown Murphy. Uh, so we made the Facebook group and I think each of us had like a plus two added um, that we wanted to join. Overnight, more people began inviting their friends and their friends invited their friends. Um, so I'm pretty sure by the time that I went to bed, which was about midnight, we had about 25 members. And I woke up the next morning to pushing 300. So we, it was, it took me by surprise, definitely. Um, I began getting messages. Um, people were sharing things and like tagging me in them. Um, that's when all the hatefulness really spiked. Um, so it was, it was really crazy. But um, to actually see it come to fruition and to see how many people came without fear and just really owned their bravery and owned how they felt about the um, things going on in our nation. Um, it was really inspiring to me to know that my small town community who may not publicly voice their opinion on matters such as this was willing to, you know, stand behind such a monumental movement. Is that how you guys identify as like Murphy's Black Lives Matter local group or? I honestly, that's a really good question. I have no clue if that's how we actually identify as a group as a group. I'm, I have no clue. That is such a good question. I just, where it started with me and my friends, it's just us and all of our supporters and people who believe in us. Yeah. And I know you guys aren't officially associated with BLM or anything. And mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. can you tell people a little bit about Murphy and kind of about why you personally wanted to organize this event? I've been at Murphy minus two years all of my life. Personally, I've never been discriminated against or um, been at the tail end of racial if issues, um, which I'm very grateful for. But there have been instances with family members that have had backhanded compliments or blatant racist things said to them. So I felt like although Murphy may not on the outside have an issue with racism itself, um, it's always good to have those uncomfortable conversations um, and to educate yourself on issues that you personally don't experience. Because me as a black woman, I'll never understand, you know, how it feels to be a black man. Although we sh share the same skin tone, there's two um, standards that are faced by both of our communities. Um, so that's really why I pushed for having the protest in Murphy, being that in the tri-state area, it is one of the larger towns. Um, I knew that it would be seen by more people. Not that there's an issue with having it elsewhere. I just, you know, if we're going to do this for the first time, I felt like we needed to do it big. So yeah, I just felt like whether there's, you know, blatant racism here or not, it's something that all families should be having a conversation with at home. And it should be something on the forefront of everyone's mind. So I'm 20. I'll be 21 in July. I feel like no matter what your age is, um, you have felt the impact of what's happened um, in sense of, you know, police brutality, 
uh, racial injustice, whether it's you've benefited or you've been extremely affected by it negatively. We've all felt the impact of it. And so just understanding that and not understanding it in a place of guilt or a place of, you know, malice intent, um, just simply acknowledging it and then figuring out what we can do moving forward. Um, Because, you know, um, I could easily sit and be angry and be negative because of the things that have happened or as presented in June, we can move forward and bring about talks of education, talks of, you know, betterment. What can we do to make the situation better? Um, and I feel like as a community, that's what, what look we need to look at. The, the glass is half full, not half empty. Um, and I think that's the most important thing, no matter what age you are, whether you're in elementary school to elderly, um, understanding how your actions and your subconscious stereotypes can play into things that are happening on a national and greater scale. Um, and then unlearning those habits, because that's how they are as habits. So um, that's the most important thing for me. And just it all it all starts with education and an open mind. Yeah. And there was, you know, a big a big turnout for Murphy. There are not a lot of protests in in Murphy, you know. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was really that was also interesting about um, the event that y'all had and maybe was different from some of the other uh, rallies in support of Black Lives Matter is that um, the Cherokee County Sheriff actually spoke at the event. Um, walk me through the relationship um, that y'all had with the with the sheriff in planning the event and um, kind of how that partnership came together. Yeah, definitely. So um, my dad actually used to work for the detention center um, here in Cherokee County. So Sheriff Palmer has always had a relationship with myself personally and our family being that his son and I grew up in very close age together. Um, so I've always had that relationship I would say with him where I felt like if I saw him in public obviously I'm going to speak he'll ask me how I'm doing how school's going um so I, I wasn't really um it was no second question for me to immediately ask for his guidance when things went from 25 to 300 so I was able to go up to the to his office um and have a sit down conversation with him and basically, they helped me walk through what was needed to propose the event to chief of police and um, our town mayor um, and the proper, you know, files, paperwork and everything that I needed to fill out. Um, and we had conversations of, you know, or I asked him what I can do to ease tensions between the crowd and police officers. So being that we both love our town, we had conversations to make sure that, you um, those that attended understood that this is nothing but peaceful um, and that that would not be tolerated, that we're not here to burn, to pillage, to destroy. We're here to speak of light and of love and of justice. Um, so that was a big conversation that we had the first day moving forward. Um, and I feel like every day leading up until the protest, I was in the police department or at the detention center having those conversations or was constantly on phone calls with them or um, texting back and forth, like I was at work and I'd be checking my phone, texting them back about minor details and things that we could do to make it more efficient and make it work better. They, they brought us water, they, brought, um, they helped us unload trucks full of food for everyone. They helped um, bring out chairs for um, people who may need to sit down from you know, various disabilities or from age. Um, and so it was a really working relationship. And I feel like that also aided in um, easing tensions with not only between 
the attendees and the police, but the community as a whole. So it was, it was very beneficial and I'm completely like happy that that happened. And I'm very grateful for Sheriff Palmer actually speaking on the subject and really just tying in the fact that we're not here to, you know, bash our police officers and we're not here to destroy the town. We're just simply here to make sure that everyone is hearing this message and everyone understands why it's important to talk about it. And looking back through, you know, kind of how the program went, there was a moment of silence and much longer than a moment, the full eight minutes and, and 48 seconds that the police officer, Jarek Chauvin, held his knee on George Floyd's neck. And now during, you know, the trial that we have all been watching and now found out that Chauvin has been found guilty on all three charges, you know, it came out during the trial that it act- was actually longer than that. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me a little bit about your feelings waiting for that, for the verdict in the trial, watching that trial as someone who, you know, was this closely involved in in organizing around um, George Floyd's death? My feelings personally is no amount of justice that can be served to Derek Chauvin will be enough for his life, um, for the bereavement of his family, for the turmoil, for the tipping stone that our nation and internationally felt from his death. Um, although, don't let me take away from the fact that I'm very happy that he has been brought to justice and will serve his time for taking this man's life. I just feel personally that nothing will ever bring a daughter's father home. Um, and it's, and it's a sad reality. So I'm very grateful for the verdict and I'm very happy that our nation and our judges and our, you know, prosecutors and law lawyers were willing to step into this and take it on and say that enough is enough. Because as much as we as the people can say enough is enough, it really takes those that are in charge of our laws, who are in charge of actually serving justice to see this as something beneficial and as something worth, um, you know, exploiting energy towards. Um, So I'm very grateful. I just wish for moving forward, we can continue seeing this as a trend rather than acquittals and, um, seeing officers just left alone and not brought to the limelight for justice. And I'll always say, personally, I feel like where we went wrong as a nation was allowing George Zimmerman to walk free in the Trayvon Martin case. I will always say that um, because it set it set the momentum, in my opinion. It, it, it allowed for us to become dormant and content with simplicity and no justice and seeing violence to people of color and it being justified by the smallest of meaning and taking away the true definition of a person's life. So to me, it's a step in the right direction. I'm hoping that from here we can see Breonna Taylor's killers being brought to justice. Um, I'm hoping that Sandra Bland's case is looked into further Um, that we can, you know, right the wrongs that we have seen happen and moving forward have eliminate the fear that black people have with the police officers and eliminate the fear that they have in society as an entirety. So where do we go from here? I know you are your home for the summer from the University of Tennessee. What are we doing? Town hall is in the works. Now that I'm free of finals, I can really sit down and, uh, you know, schedule a time to do that. I have a, um, a very high ranking, I would say office within my sorority. Um, it's a historically black 
uh, founded sorority, Sigma Gamma Rho Sorority Incorporated. Um, and I serve as the highest ranked undergraduate member. So it's um, a very time consuming office that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. But so I'm really taking the summer to just work, dropping those seeds of encouragement for others in the in this community. Because personally, I don't see myself being in Murphy t- forever, but I um, don't want to leave without knowing that, you know, our community understands that when it's time to stand up, we have to stand up with no fear and just face the issue head on. That's Taylor Allen, who helped organize last summer's racial justice protests in Murphy, speaking with BPR's Lily Knapp. The Murphy Black Lives Matter Facebook page is still active, and Allen says that will be the best way to learn the details of their upcoming town hall. You're listening to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. I'm Matt Bush. History has been such a crucial part of the reflection and understanding of last year's racial justice protests and how communities are moving forward. This week, the Western North Carolina Historical Association presented its Outstanding Achievement Award to advocate, historian, writer, and visual artist Ann Miller Woodford of Andrews. Here are some highlights of the virtual ceremony, starting with an introduction by the Association's Awards Committee Chair, Catherine Frank. As I gathered with the members of our Outstanding Achievement Award, I was struck with the diversity, creativity, and talent of the people of our region who are working to understand our past. History's never seemed more relevant than in this very unusual year. In Western North Carolina, we've confronted the shortcomings of the ways that we learn and memorialize our history. We've acknowledged the ways our past informs our present in ways good and bad. We've seen efforts to preserve our built environment and to assess what our memorials say about our history and ourselves. We're learning the power of knowing and telling more than one story. We're finally hearing the stories of the incarcerated people who died building our railroads. And we're beginning to make more routine the practice of land acknowledgement to recognize and respect indigenous people as the traditional stewards of the land. In this outstanding year, Ann Miller Woodford's achievements are truly outstanding. She has shared her work in a number of exhibitions telling the history of African-Americans in far Western North Carolina and celebrating her own vision and inspiration in art. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm, I, I'm just overwhelmed. What a wonderful, wonderful gift you've given to me. I never would have dreamed in all my visioning for the future. I never would have dreamed of myself being among people like the ones that you've already talked about today. When I looked at your website, I, I uh, love your justice statement. And you said your board of trustees stands against inequity, injustice, and racism, acknowledges and supports the positive role that recent protests have played in opening the door to real and necessary change that you recognize that there is an ongoing need to better represent the diversity of voices in our region and that you commit to listening and learning. Thank you, thank you all for that. That is a fantastic statement to go by. Words like these can and must transform our communities and is holding uncomfortable conversations that will have to take place continuously. So we will move on from here Black writers like Langston Hughes and Lorraine Hansberry ask us, what happens to a dream deferred? I know 
that it can dry up and die like a raisin in the sun. We can all see around us today that it can explode into heart-rending negative actions as well. But working together, we all refuse to allow our people to be ignored and forgotten. We are going to bring down these walls. I appreciate your having provided a place to remember the almost invisible African-American people in far western North Carolina. You made a step toward tearing down these walls that divide us as a people. You're moving toward building bridges across the lines of race, religion, national origin, gender, and so many other chasms we have in our country today. I pray that we'll never allow the dreams of our young people to dry up and die like a raisin in the sun. However, there is an old African proverb that says, put some feet on those prayers. <laughs> I hope that many other people will be vicariously lifted today and encouraged to talk with their own elders and write the stories that they tell so they can use it for future generations. We're each diminished if we forget who we are. Remember another old African proverb says, when an elder dies, a library burns to the ground. Western North Carolina Historical Association, I thank you, all of you, for this wonderful honor. That's Ann Miller Woodford receiving the Outstanding Achievement Award from the Western North Carolina Historical Association this week. Big thank you to BPR's Helen Chickering for recording it. You're listening to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. I'm Matt Bush. That's the sound this week of stonecutters being taken to the Vance Monument in downtown Asheville. Once the demolition of the 65-foot obelisk in Pack Square is done, and it will take a few weeks as it is coming down block by block, one of the calls made by the group Black AVL Demands on the final day of the racial justice protest last year in Asheville will be fulfilled. The removal of all three Confederate monuments from the city's main public space. A much larger demand, a 50% cut to the Asheville Police Department budget with the money saved then invested in the city's black community, faces far larger obstacles. Joel Burgess covers city government for the Asheville Citizen Times. He joined me via Zoom, and yes, he's outside because the weather was very nice this week, so you'll hear some birds chirping in the background. To discuss what changes have happened within the Asheville Police Department and its budget over the last year, starting with the immediate response from the city following the protests. Just to remind people, the the budget year for uh, local governments like the city starts in July. So yeah, they they had already kind of moved into their budget, but it was a weird year because of the pandemic, right? And then these protests that that we'd never seen uh, anything like that in Asheville, you know, with up to a thousand people in the street. And so they really did put a lot of pressure on um, on city officials. Uh, they ended up cutting, although the calls were for 50%, you know, uh, cut in the police budget, they ended up cutting a relatively small amount, 3% uh, or 770,000. And what they did was essentially was redirect uh, certain services, peel out certain services that police did that other uh, departments could do, like enforcing the noise ordinance or uh, animal control. So it's also worth noting that uh, city manager Deborah Campbell, who is the, uh, the first black uh, city manager in Asheville's history, said that she did not support uh, defunding police, but she did support what uh, she has called uh, reimagining public safety. And she's also called it uh, divest and invest. And, you know, a lot of people have, have talked about what that might look like. Um, and the, a lot of folks point to some programs that have happened out, out West, particularly in Oregon, where you've had um, 
people that are called sometimes community paramedics that go and will will deal with certain calls that maybe police might have might have taken in uh, in the past, such as somebody having a mental health crisis, somebody having a drug overdose, even, and trying to not you know maybe not just deal with the overdose, but then deal with helping this person uh, with addiction, getting them the services, trying to avoid an encounter that might then lead to a criminal charge. So anyway, yes, there was a little bit done last year, and now we're into this new budget cycle where decisions uh, will have to be made again before July 1st on spending. And we're going to get into that budget sessions that were held this month with the city and the city council. A lot of things came out of those that we'll discuss here in a moment, but there was a lot of time between when that was finally passed, that 3% cut, which again, we're not really maybe saying a cut. It was really more of a reshuffling with the two you know, duties of noise ordinance and, and animal control moved out of the police department. There was a lot that happened within the police department between that time last summer and right now, which is going to impact how the budget's going to look going forward. So tell us about what has happened in the city police department and the amount of turnover that has happened in the last, not, maybe not, not even really a year, in the last six to nine months. That's right. So the uh, officers uh, had really never encountered, as I said, we'd never seen uh, any sort of, you know, a protest like this before in Asheville. And I don't think uh, any of the police had either. And particularly, they hadn't been in a situation where they had been the target of the protests. And so uh, the turnover was tremendous. Uh, city has been looking at turnover in general among uh, it's uh, more than 1,000 employees, and they've said that in the police department, it's the highest. It's 28%. So they've lost a lot of officers. And, you know, just anecdotally, they've lost other staff, too. We, You know, people may have seen we've written about how the police department front desk shut down because of uh, three people retiring at one time. So there's no real public interface uh, there at the front of the police department. And they, they attributed it to the staffing crisis. What was the cause of the retirements? You did some reporting on this. Was it because of the protests? Was it the pressure that police officers were feeling? Was it other factors? You just mentioned the shutdown of the front desk. That just happened because three people retired at the same time that had nothing really to do with this. So what really was the cause of all this turnover? Well, that, it really it really was the, the protests. It's hard not to, uh, not to see the connection there. It'd be a heck of a coincidence otherwise. And in fact, there was some direct evidence of it. You know, we, we had uh, an officer um, decide to quit and, and actually sent kind of this heartfelt letter out to a neighborhood group uh, with whom he'd been dealing, uh, just talking about the stress of it. And I think it's it's not uh, uncommon for this to be happening in other police departments in the United States, too, that may have seen uh, similar protests. But yes, that's it. It's this, uh, it's this direct criticism, this pressure that police are feeling uh, from, from all sources, really. So now as we move into the budget here, you said Deborah Campbell, the city manager, the one who really comes up with the budgets, is not supportive of a 50% cut, has used some different terms, divest and invest. So with this drop, with this turnover rate in the police department, coming into the budget now, we had some talk at a budget session this earlier this month. What's happening? What's going on? What does it look like will be happening with the city police department budget in the coming fiscal year? Well, sort of big picture with the city budget is that they are considering uh, almost eight million dollars in raises for all city staff because they're saying they're just they're losing staff they're having this high turnover and with police though the interesting thing is that they say they're not going to fill or at least this is the proposal by deborah campbell and you know worth noting ultimate approval of the budget must come from the city council so the county uh, the city manager proposes the budget city council votes on it so um she's proposing not to replace these missing 
uh, police, the, the vacant police uh, positions. And, and that amounts to more than uh, $2 million. And using that to give some raises, to pay for overtime, uh, to pay for um, increased body camera costs, uh, to do some de-escalation training, something they call verbal judo crisis intervention, and also some some what they also call fair and impartial police trainings, and also to some of that money would leave the department and go to help with uh, enforcement of those services that are now being carried out in other parts of city government, such as again uh, animal control and uh, noise ordinance enforcement. But there's no. There, there seems to be no large flow of money out of APD. At least there's none uh, recommended at this point. And again, going back to the what Black AVL demands that group uh, require requested from the city was that the money come from the police department and then go in back into the black community. That isn't happening, even with the police department may actually see budget cuts really more through not filling positions. Anyway, the money saved from that isn't going to be flowing back into the black community as Black AVL demands it asked, right? That's correct. In fact, it may be spent in the police department in different ways. In other words, they may lose positions, but that money may stay in the department. And, you know, again, I, I know that uh, people have talked about this and explained this, but the concept too with the, the divesting is it just, it actually reduces the number of police on the street, which critics say is is the problem with uh, some of the racial disparities you see in the way policing is done. So, you know, it's, it's purposeful when they talk about reducing the number of police, these folks calling for uh, defunding. Um, it's worth noting that all this is happening as uh, Asheville Police Chief David Zach, who has been on the job just a little over the year, has been beating the drum on gun violence and saying that Asheville's uh, gun violence is just it's high and, and far too high for a city of its size and uh, far too dangerous and deadly. And so while we're having this discussion about funding the police and about uh, police leaving the department, the chief is saying people are being shot, you know, and, and officers, we need officers to to help stop it. So. With not replacing these new police officers, you mentioned looking at other programs across the country, community paramedics that you'd seen in some places on the West Coast. Given some of the other issues that are happening in Asheville, particularly around homelessness, um, are there looks right now within this budget on how some of the duties that police previously did that they may not be doing anymore because there may be fewer of them or for whatever, is there any movement to changing that in the upcoming budget or is that going to be something that's going to take a considerable amount of time in the, in Asheville? While, while this stuff is happening on the West Coast, it's worth mentioning that uh, there actually is now a community paramedic program here in Buncombe County. And of course, you know, Asheville's part of Buncombe County, so it's operating in Asheville also. And it's been funded by county government. And it's relatively small. It's a pilot program, but uh, county commissioners uh, support it. They, they want to increase it and they they link its need to the opioid epidemic, but you know, also the concept of policing in a different way. City leaders, too, want to help fund this. I think their idea is to boost this county program. Now, that money doesn't look like it's coming out of APD, so it doesn't look like there's a divesting of Asheville police in order to fund it. It looks like there's just money coming into it. So that is happening in terms of policing. Um, there's also, you know, neighborhood grants. There's this idea of, of talking to local neighborhoods in Asheville and asking them about small projects that they think could really better uh, their lives and maybe make their neighborhoods more safe. But again, that's that doesn't appear to be money that's flowing out of the police department. All this is going to be more clear uh, in the next few weeks and days as we learn more uh, as about the city manager's proposed budget. It's not quite finalized. 
during those protests last year, also, we had heard from uh, Republican State Senator Chuck Edwards, who certainly increased his profile also in the Republican Party and in state politics over the last year, talking about a bill that would punish cities in, in North Carolina that would um, defund the police, essentially. This is really coming up as Asheville did make its move again for that 3%, not necessarily divesting or cut, but 3% sort of shifting of money out of the police department. He did introduce a bill. So far, it has not gone anywhere. But let's talk about that. The response to what Asheville did, because as you were, you, as we know, Asheville was in many ways, particularly with reparations and talking about police, was a bit at the front of the national conversation about this. So what has been the reaction from outside of Asheville to what has happened within city government? Yeah. So Asheville is unusual in North Carolina, as, as many of us know. It's with the exception of a few other places in the country, Oklahoma, uh, it happened there. There's been some movement there. Asheville was one of the few that, that at least talked about taking these steps and made some sort of movement. You know, again, I'm not saying there was a, a massive uh, defunding or divestment from police, but there was a cut and there was a talk. There was talk about reforming the way we do policing. Uh, and the backlash um, came uh, at least in, in from one uh, North Carolina state senator, Chuck Edwards, who's from neighboring Henderson County, who, uh, as you said, proposed uh, punishing cities that take too much money from uh, police budgets, who essentially try to defund the police. Edwards suggested or proposed in his bill that uh, such local governments that do that would lose transportation funding. It Interestingly, the, the bill seemed like it'd be uh, pretty popular in the Republican-controlled General Assembly, uh, Senate Bill 100. Uh, he called it the Police Funding Protection Act. But it doesn't appear that the bill has gone anywhere in this session and may not in this session. That doesn't mean it's, you know, uh, dead forever in the future. But um, I, I was a little surprised to see it not uh, not uh, getting votes uh, in the House also. You were there during the protest last year, as was I on uh, on the ground. Looking back at a year how much of what we heard during the marches, during the during the protests, during all of that week, how much is really translated into what the city is doing right now? Um, talking about you know the fifty percent thing, the city manager says that's not going to happen, but there is movement on some of these things. And one of the things that was requested by Black AVL demands was the removal of the monuments. And this week, the demolition of the third one is is taking place that prior to it already been gone. So how much movement have we really had over the last year of what we heard during all those marches last year? That is that is a fascinating question, and I guess we could we could try to quantify it. And you just did a little bit, you know, in terms of there were a couple uh, monuments that were removed, smaller monuments before the Vance Monument. Now, yes, uh, that is underway. Uh, in terms of reparations, has moved forward. The city council actually is looks like it's it's going to approve one point two million dollars for the reparations fund. So that's solid movement in terms of a program that people had doubts about after. Uh, that historic vote back in, in July to create this initiative, the reparations for, for black residents. Um, policing, I would definitely say that there, there appears to be a different outlook, but in terms of defunding, divesting the police in, in the police, I'm not sure we're seeing that. You know, um, We're going to have to wait and see again, like I said, what, uh, what the actual recommended budget is and what the city council decides to do. That's Joel Burgess of the Asheville Citizen Times, and we thank him and all our guests today for taking the time to speak with us for this episode of The Porch. The BPR news team is Helen Schickering, Cass Harrington, Lily Knepp, Matt Pikin, Corey Valencourt, Megan Kane, and me, Matt Bush. 
This was just an hour on the topic that is the defining one of our lifetimes, and we know there are so many other voices that need to be heard. We're committed to keeping these conversations going in our news coverage and on all of our podcasts. That's a promise. The next conversation is coming quickly. Join us this Wednesday evening, May 26th, on the BPR YouTube channel for another live episode of The Waters and Harvey Show. The topic will be reparations in Asheville, and City Manager Deborah Campbell will be one of our guests. We want to hear from you ahead of the show. Answer these questions for us. What is justice, and what form of reparations will bring racial justice? Email your answers to whshow at bpr.org, and we may use them in the show. Register for Wednesday's Live Waters and Harvey show right now at bpr.org. We want to see you there, and we always like seeing you here on the porch, where we'll be back with you again next month. Stay safe. <laughs>